0: your Bible out, whatever you're using this morning, and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and uh, just keep your Bible open because we're going to be looking over the course of the next few minutes through several chapters I'll reference some things in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So uh, you just keep your Bible open, and, and we'll, we'll throw some verses on the screen as well if, you, if, if uh, I'll try to not get uh, too ahead of us. But uh, it's, we want to take kind of a, a, a big, wide, overarching view of this idea of how we face the fallout from our sin. As we get close to wrapping up the series we've been going through the last several weeks from the life of David, in fact, next Sunday will be the last uh, sermon from this particular series, and the previous two weeks we have seen uh, kind of uh, a 180 type of story in David's life, a hundred degree turn that he makes where he messes up his life and then he restores his life and that brings us to where we are today. And it's important for me to share with you this morning a false assumption that many people have that we need to have corrected before we move any further into our study of how we face the fallout from sin. And that false assumption is this forgiveness of sin removes the consequences of sin. That's an assumption some people have, but it's false. It's a mistaken idea to believe that the forgiveness of sin removes all the consequences of sin. You see, sin has consequences. Now, forgiveness That does remove the condemnation of sin between man and God, but forgiveness of sin does not negate the consequences of our actions. I think it's Dave Ramsey who calls it a stupid tax. (laughs) That there are things that we can do that are not wise, that are sinful, and we can receive forgiveness, but there are still consequences that follow that sin. So at the outset this morning, it's very important for us to understand the difference between forgiveness of sin and the consequences of sin. Forgiveness is always relational. Okay, this is the difference. Forgiveness is always relational the death of Christ reconciles us in our relationship with him so that we, imperfect people, can have a relationship with a perfect God. Forgiveness is always relational. Consequences are always circumstantial. Okay, consequences, they don't necessarily deal with the relationship so much as they deal with the circumstances of our lives. At the circumstances we experience after sin, that's the consequences that we're experiencing after sin. And we need to know this morning that sin has consequences, and some of those sins are painful. You need to realize that this morning because some of you are here and you are only the brink of making decisions that will carry disastrous consequences. Others of you need to hear this today because you need to see what happened in David's life because you've already made bad choices in your life. You're suffering the consequences of sin, and you need to know that God's grace is greater than your sin. You see, ultimately, God may not remove many of the consequences of our sin, but God has the ability to take our bad decisions and weave them into his perfect plan so that he can receive glory and still bless our lives with his goodness. And you see that in the life of David. What happens in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is that David is confronted with the sin he committed back in chapter 11. He repents of that sin in chapter 12, and he experiences forgiveness. In fact, it tells us in chapter 12 and verse 13 that the Lord has put away your sin that was God's promise to him through Nathan the prophet, you shall not die. David is forgiven, but there are consequences to his actions. In fact, in chapter 12 and verse 10, God makes this pronouncement about the consequences of David's sin. He says, the sword shall never depart from your house. He's saying, David, you are forgiven, but you understand there are consequences with which you must deal. And before chapter 12 is over, David's newborn son has died, and David experiences pain as never before. And the chapters that follow reveal the depth of the consequences of David's sin. Let's get an overview. And the reason I want to give you this overview of the consequences, Consequences of this, of his sin is I want you to understand that sin is nothing that we need to play with this morning. That it has consequences that are far reaching in our lives. So buckle up and let's just kind of run through some of the text and look at the highlights of the consequences of his sin. You ready? I don't know why I asked no about if you're ready or not. We're going to do it anyway. Okay. David has a son whose name is Amnon. Okay, Amnon develops a crush on his half-sister, Tamar. Okay, so Tamar and Amnon, same daddy, different mamas. And he develops this crush upon her, and he devises a plan to have her, and he eventually forces himself upon her. And then he decides he doesn't like her, but instead he hates her. Which brings us to chapter 13, verses 15 through 17. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And you say, it makes no sense. You're absolutely correct, it makes no sense. That's the consequence of sin. It makes no sense. And Amnon said to her, this is after he's forced himself upon her, Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me than when you raped me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her." where's David? David is totally disconnected from all of this. He learns about it. He gets angry, but he doesn't do anything about it. Now, David has another son whose name is Absalom. And Absalom and Tamar are full-fledged brothers and sisters. They're not half they're, They They have the same dad, same mom. Absalom hears about what's happened to his sister Tamar by his half-brother Amnon. That's right, we're getting into Jerry Springer territory very quickly. And Absalom cannot believe that his daddy David hasn't done anything about it. And so Absalom begins to plant revenge against Amnon. He spends two years plotting against Amnon. He gets him drunk, and then he kills him. After Absalom kills Amnon, the sword should never depart from your house. This is a consequence of David's sin. After Absalom kills his half-brother Amnon, he runs for his life, and he is in hiding for three years. David knows exactly where Absalom is, but he never goes to seek him for reconciliation or for any kind of restitution. And so David's right-hand man, who's a man by the name of Joab, Joab says to David, let me bring Absalom back. David says, fine. When Absalom comes back, David still refuses to see him. Another two years pass by. David refuses to speak to his son for five years. Maybe this is just a, this is a freebie, not in the plan of my outline, but if you've got a daddy or a mama who's still alive, call them today. Reach out and talk to them today. Five years David chose not to have a relationship with his son. Absalom sends messages to David. He's trying to reach out to David through David's right-hand man, Joab, but Joab doesn't deliver, like the post office in Milton, he doesn't deliver the letters. Apologies if you work there. (laughs) And he refuses to give David the letters. And Absalom gets mad. So you look over in, in chapter 14. And here's what Absalom does in response. Chapter 14, verses 29 and 30, it says, that Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, Absalom said, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set his field on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Absalom is trying to get daddy's attention. Absalom is trying to get David to listen to him, but it won't happen. And so now Absalom then begins to plot to take the kingdom away from his daddy. Absalom, Scripture tells us, was tall and good-looking with beautiful long hair. I'm 5'10", hair that's graying and receding and not that much to look at, so I ain't got nothing in common with him there. But he is a man that when he walks through town, people take notice of him. And so what Absalom would do is he would go and he would stand right outside the palace. And when people would come to the palace to seek a, a presence, in a, a spot in the king's presence to have the king settle a dispute, Absalom would say, let me help you think through that. No need to fool with the king. I can help you find favor. I can help you resolve this issue. Look over in chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. Absalom would say to him, When someone came with a complaint or needing justice from the king. See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to me, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Israel he identifies this prince identifies with the common man and he steals the hearts of those men when the time was right Absalom staged his rebellion And Absalom drove David, his father, out of the palace. And then Absalom built a pavilion in front of God and everybody else. And Absalom would sleep publicly. He would sleep with a few of David's wives. Plural, that's a problem in and of itself. He would publicly sleep with David's wives on the rooftop of that pavilion. So everyone would see and everyone would know that David is humiliated and that Absalom was establishing his rule and his reign. David then becomes fearful. First, it was Absalom who fled, and now David gets scared, and David flees for his life. Chapter 15 and verse 30 tells us, this is important to notice the geography of this in just a second. Chapter 15, verse 30. So David went up. He didn't go down. He went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. David goes up. The Mount of Olives, away from Jerusalem, away from danger, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. As David is fleeing, he meets a grandson of Saul. Saul was the king before David. Saul didn't like David. Saul became really mad in the head, and and he meets as he's fleeing. He meets a grandson of Saul by the name of Shimei in chapter sixteen. Look at what happens in chapter sixteen, verses five through eight. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and were on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son. Absalom. See, David, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, verse 9, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord and king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king, David, in verse 10, the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? Don't miss that. David, when when, When David says... But if he's cursing because the Lord's told him to curse David, David's faith is wavering. His words right here contradict his words. We looked at last week in Psalm 51 where he rested in God's steadfast love and forgiveness. David is now beginning to to not see the difference between forgiveness of sin and the consequences of sin. David is living with a guilt concession. Complex. He's feeling condemned. He's now out of touch with the gospel. Long story short, tur—I won't say it's going to be short, a shorter than it could be. Finally, things begin to turn around just a little bit for David. David gathers up enough military to take back his kingdom, and then it's Absalom who once again flees. And when he flees, David gives very clear instructions to the soldiers as they pursue Absalom. Those instructions are over in chapter 18 and verse 5. These are the instructions of David to his soldiers as they pursue Absalom, his son. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai. Deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. David says, you find him, but deal gently with him. The the chase begins. They go to find Absalom. Absalom is riding his horse. Absalom goes under a low branch, and that long hair got tangled. Yes, before Disney. This is the original Tangled movie, Okay. The long hair of Absalom gets tangled up in that branch, and he is literally stuck there, hanging there. And along come the soldiers. And his death then follows. Chapter 8 and verse 14. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while it was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Word gets back to David that his boy, his son, has been killed. He says, How are things going? In chapter 18, in verse 31, 32, 33, I think are some of the most deep emotional verses that you find in Scripture. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my Lord the King, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. King David said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? I ask you guys, take care, don't deal gently for my sake, deal gently with my boy. And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Translation, he is dead dead, dead. We have slaughtered him. There is no way he's coming back. King David, we have killed Absalom. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, how deep. How destructive are the consequences of sin? Everything we just read, and we left out a bunch of it, everything that we just read is a fulfillment of the promise of God to David that because of his sin, the sword would never depart from his house. Yes, he received forgiveness, but my goodness gracious, how deep and how destructive those consequences of sin are. And I need you to understand this morning that our sin impacts our physical lives. This is the fallout of sin. It impacts our physical lives. David's physical life would end because of sin, and ours will as well. This consequence, that the fact that we die because of sin, this is the fallout from sin. And this fallout did not begin with David, but it began with Adam and Eve. A universal consequence of sin is death. Our sin impacts our physical lives, but our sin also impacts our spiritual lives. Because it is our sin that separates us from God. It is our sin that keeps us from having the right relationship with God. Without Christ as our Lord and Savior, Scripture teaches us in the book of Ephesians that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. If you don't have Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, you might be physically breathing, but spiritually, you are dead. Because the fallout of sin impacts our physical life, and it impacts our spiritual life, and our sin impacts other people's lives this is so clear maybe clearer than anything else from david's experience the lesson we take away is that you never sin in isolation even when you're alone someone else always suffers for your sin if we were to stop right now you might be happy for the time's sake But you wouldn't be happy for the content's sake, because that's a pretty dark, pretty gloomy picture. So may I, over the next five, ten minutes, can I tell you why this story is in the Bible? It's in the Bible for three reasons. One, God wants to warn us of the consequences of sin. This is here in our Bibles today because God wants to warn us of the consequences of sin. David's experience screams to us, stay away from sin. His experience is a loud warning to us about how destructive sin can be. And if you will know now how destructive sin can be, it might prevent you from doing something then. If you understand what would happen if you follow through with sin, that might change what would happen. It might change our actions. God wants to warn us of the consequences of sin. But secondly, God wants us to see the gospel. This story's here because God wants us to see the gospel. Remember where all this began. All of this began when the people of God The people of Israel, they were not satisfied with God. They believed that they needed something else other than God, and they demanded a king, thinking that a king would give them safety, security, and satisfaction. So they went around God, and they found a king named Saul who started out well, but ended poorly. And then they went to a king named David, and they looked to David for their significance, for their security, for their stability. David was a better king than Saul, but he was not the king that they needed they needed a king and we need a king who would prevail where David failed you see the gospel when you really look at it the gospel saturates this story you and I are like Absalom we have rebelled against God we have stolen our father's kingdom for ourselves. We have publicly humiliated him on the rooftops of our lives. But a big difference between us and Absalom is that Absalom was driven to his rebellion because of David's failures. We rebelled against God after he had been the perfect father to us. You see, Jesus showed us the love that David failed to show Absalom. Absalom comes home and David refuses to see him for five years. Fast forward, New Testament. Jesus tells a parable about a man who had two sons, and one went off and lived his life in complete rebellion, but he decided to come home. And when that prodigal son came home, the father didn't leave the house, the father went out to meet him. See, David refused to see Absalom for five years, but Jesus, through that uh, parable, through the narrative, he tells us the prodigal son, he lets us know that God our Father longs for us to return home. David, don't miss this, David fled from Absalom up the Mount of Olives, out of Jerusalem, away from trouble. Jesus, the Bible tells us, went down to the Mount of Olives, went down in truth. He didn't run away from trouble. He ran right toward the cross because he knew what the cross was the only way to deal with the power that sin has over us. David could not, David did not save Absalom's life. Would I had died instead of you, he cried out. Jesus did what was required to save our lives when he hung on the cross and he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Absalom died hanging in a tree with a spear in his heart because of his rebellion. Jesus died on a tree after they shoved a spear in his side because of our rebellion. Jesus did for us what David could not do. And God wants us to see that Christ is the truer David. He is the better David. He is the real king because he's the Savior and he's the Redeemer. This narrative is in your Bible because God wants you to see the gospel. But the third reason this narrative is in the Bible is that God wants us to put our hope in Christ. You see, when we see the gospel in this story and we see Christ as Savior, we're able to have hope even in the painful consequences of our sin. That hope gives us the ability to break the cycle of sin in our lives. Don't miss this. God, before David said, God had given wonderful promises to David. And even though David had to experience painful consequences for his sin, God still had a plan for his life. And his sin did not negate the promise of God for his life. God had promised David in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. God made that promise to David and even in, even though David is a sinner, even though David suffers the consequences of his sin, God still kept his promise and the goodness and the mercy of God followed David all the days of his life. God had promised David, David, from your seed I will bring a Messiah and David has sinned and David has messed up, but God still keeps his promise and brings from this messed up, jacked up family the Savior of the world. Listen to me, my friend. We will suffer consequences for our sin, but Jesus Christ took the ultimate penalty for all of our sin. He has taken the sting out of death and sin, and because of that, the word and the hope that is spoken to David is the same word and hope that is given to you, your life in Christ will not be characterized by death and condemnation because his goodness and his mercy will follow you. Your sin is not the final word over you. Your identity is not in your sin, but in your Savior Jesus Christ. That is hope. And so today, That ultimate consequence of sin, separation from God, it can be removed. And because of that, God can work redemptively now through the self-inflicted consequences of your sin for your good and his glory. I would challenge you. To find me one person in Scripture through whom God worked who was not broken. Show me one person in Scripture outside of Jesus that did not have flaws, that did not have sin. The previous two weeks I've made this statement, I'm going to make it today. Everyone sins. It's what you do after you sin that's the difference between life and death. As we prepare to have this time of commitment, in just a second I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to give you the chance to do business with God in whatever way you need to do business with God. Maybe you're here today, and you're on the brink of sin, you're on the brink of, and you know you're there, of crossing that line and doing something that's going to bring destruction into your life. What you learn from David's example today, and instead of focusing on the sin in front of you, focusing instead on the Savior within you. As the book of Hebrews tells us to to fix our eyes on Jesus. Would you make that commitment to fix your eyes upon him? Maybe you're here today and you've already made the mistakes and you're already suffering the consequences. And you think that that sin is what defines you. If you have a relationship with Jesus today, sin does not define you. He does. His grace is greater than that sin. Jesus is simply a cry away, a prayer away. And if you need to pray today to receive him as Lord and Savior, you can ask him to save you right where you are. I don't know what God's placed upon your heart today, but I know God is calling all of us to do something. Our job is to put our yes on the table and let God decide what's on the table. Our job is to say yes to whatever he's calling us to do. Don't cling to your sin one second longer than you have to. It's not going to get you anywhere. Jesus will do something redemptive in your life. Let's pray. Father, as we place ourselves before you today, we are thankful for what Jesus did for us. And God, we pray that wherever we are in our lives, whatever step we need to take, that today we would simply say yes. Would you have your will and your way in our lives? As we experience this time of commitment, may we simply say yes. In your good name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.